This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. All right, Tim. Week 44, working from home. Okay, but who's counting, Carol? I know. I apparently <laughs> am. Uh, we've been in our studio, though, in New York City at Bloomberg headquarters. It's a week full of anxiety and questions of what's to come. We watch virus numbers ticking higher, the vaccine rollout continuing to frustrate, right? And for the first time in history, a U.S. president was impeached for a second time. With that in mind, we'll hear from the author of Kill Switch, the rise of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy. Also, his primary motivation was his anger at uh, government shutdowns due to, due to coronavirus. The U.S. Capitol rioter that has no regrets. This was among our most read stories this week. For me, it was a must read. Yeah, it was a fascinating story. And in the meantime, the business world, Carol, it marches on. IPOs off and running as Petco went public again. We've got the CEO. But Tim, we're going to begin with a top story this week. Big tech, social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon, banning President Trump, Parler, and others in an effort to prevent further riot organizing. We caught up with Bloomberg News technology reporter Sarah Fryer, author of No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, who, got to say, kicked it off with a little levity in an already stressful 2021. I was looking forward to 2021 that didn't look anything like 2020, but uh, I don't think I'll be so lucky. Um, And and obviously um, um, with Mm -hmm. sort of the social media platforms, um, basically, basically, you know, not only blocking uh, Trump and, and perhaps permanently banning him in the case of Twitter, but then I think the the parlor conversation has become the one that's even more interesting because um, both the Apple App Store and and Google's Play Store has, have taken restrictions there. But then I thought the the big move and the one that I was actually most eager to talk to Sarah about was sort of the the Amazon move, the AWS yeah. coming in and basically blocking it. I didn't so see Sarah, that coming. I mean, this <laughs> yeah, but it does show you know like not only are the social media companies able to wield a stick, but like Amazon's got the biggest stick of all so so sarah kind of there's this is just a fast moving story but uh, i want to understand like how you're thinking about where this conversation go goes from from here well it dovetails right in with the tech power conversation that we're going to have a lot more this year as these antitrust um battles with washington rage on um and it, i expect that to continue during the biden administration and that tech power conversation is both about you know the power to restrict as as much as it is about the power to allow, um, and so the companies are grappling with this, allowing Parler to be on the App Store, allowing Parler to have um, hosting by Amazon. That's something that employees are looking at, critics are looking at, and saying, "Well, why don't you just cut them off? You have the power to do that. You're a private company." And the companies are are saying, you know what? Yeah, we don't want to be dealing with this. This we don't want this headache. And and it's really interesting to see that evolution because we've we've talked about it a lot, like you said, with the social media companies. Uh, it, a lot of conservatives are concerned about too much cutting off of of people who have accounts. A lot of uh, people on the Democratic side are concerned about the hosting of illegal activity and. Um, people who are inciting violence. And in the balance is really what is is uh, an issue here. Silicon Valley companies have a reputation for being really mission-driven, and I think a lot of employees have had uh, a 
personal reckoning over the last few years. Is it ethical to work for Facebook? Is it ethical to work for Google if they're working with the Defense Department on, you know, uh, putting people in cages at the border? There have been a lot of of new debates about you know, what it means if you work for a company that has certain suppliers, certain vendors, certain contracts, and host certain voices. And so we have seen employees be almost the more forceful voice against their leaders and even the government, because the government can't, can't really um, be clear about what they want. Everyone's scrutinizing tech power, but they don't necessarily have a clear direction of what would be a good resolution, whereas employees, you know, they're mostly, they're mostly liberal, they're well-educated, and they're saying, hey, I don't want to work for a place that supports something like this. And we saw an open letter from Twitter employees to Jack Dorsey asking for a bigger ban on Trump. They had previously only banned him for 12 hours, and now that he's permanently banned. And we've seen, we've seen Amazon employees write to their employer about Parler. It's saying, why are we hosting Parler? We should, we should kick them off. And I think that that power should not be underestimated because of how hard it is to recruit in Silicon Valley the best talent. Well, and what's to stop, I don't know, a, like, I don't know whether there's oranges to oranges, apples to apples, but another company from saying, I don't like, well, I guess companies do that, right? If they don't want to work with a supplier or if they don't want to work with something, they have that opportunity to do it, Sarah. I'm just trying to understand the differences or not differences from another company kind of banning something, you know, whether they don't sell to a certain customer. Um, they do that all the time, right? Well, sometimes, so, okay, a few years ago, companies were happy to just work within the bounds of the law. There are sanctions against Iran. We won't sell to Iran. That, that was like, you know, if it's illegal, we won't do it. Um, and that was how Facebook and Twitter thought about content a lot in the early days. You know, remove as little as possible. All right, Tim, safe to say social media really rethinking some of its playbook. We saw that this week, right? No no doubt about it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was really surprised to see big moves from the biggest tech companies essentially deplatforming the president. Yeah, really remarkable. All right, that was Bloomberg News technology reporter Sarah Fryer. She joined us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Still to come, as social media banned the president, the U.S. House voted to impeach him for a historic second time. We'll hear from a top aide to former Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada and the author of Kill Switch, the rise of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy. Timely book. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. This past week will go down in U.S. history as the U.S. House of Representatives impeached President Trump for a second time, 10 Republicans voting in favor. Tim, it was kind of a reminder of the division and dysfunction we are seeing definitely throughout the GOP. Yeah, I mean, only the future will tell if this is a splintering. For seven years, Adam Gentleson had an up-close view of growing Senate dysfunction as a top aide to former Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada and writes about it in his new book, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Switch. It's a great title. Adam is Public Affairs Director of Democracy Ford. It's a legal advocacy group against corruption in the executive branch and government. We began with the news of the last two weeks. There was a lot of it. We talked about the Capitol riot and the second impeachment of President Trump. I hate to say it, but I'm not surprised. I think this is the logical result of what 
the president has been stoking for the last four years. Um, and, you know, something I talk about in the book, I mean, you know, the rise of these forces predates him. Um, he took over the GOP in terms of assuming its leadership, but a lot of the forces that propelled him to office existed before he even stepped into the political arena. So I think that it's horrible to see what we've been seeing over the last week, but it is sort of sadly the culmination of a lot of trends of extreme partisanship that have been building for decades now. So explain your title, The Kill Switch. What do you mean? So when I worked in the Senate, one of the things you hear a lot is that the Senate is supposed to act as a cooling saucer. Uh, this is, dates back to an apocryphal story about George Washington explaining to Thomas Jefferson as they were drinking some tea uh, that the Senate was supposed to act uh, like the saucer under Jefferson's tea. Uh, the tea would splash out of the saucer, cool on the, uh, splash out of the cup and cool on the saucer right. before it was ready to drink. Uh, what, that was true at a time. Um, the founders uh, created the Senate to be deliberative and thoughtful. They also created it to not have a filibuster and to not have a supermajority threshold for passing legislation. They created it as a majority rule institution. It was designed to be thoughtful, but also to get things done uh, and for debate to be thorough but limited. What we see today in the modern Senate is a body that allows the party that's out of power to use the rules of they, as they have come to evolve to stop everything that comes before the chamber. Uh, this combines with the forces of partisanship that are dominating our politics today to turn the Senate from what was once a cooling saucer now into a kill switch that shuts down everything that the federal government tries to do. And a big reason for that is in something that you really dig deeply into in your book is the filibuster. That's right. And so the book explains the historical evolution of the filibuster. Um, this is something that, you know, if folks know anything about the Senate, they tend to know about the filibuster. And when they think of it, they tend to think of uh, Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Holding the floor, talking at length, uh, sort of using it as, as an underdog against the forces of corruption and entrenched power. Um, the thing is, this is not really what the filibuster has ever truly been in practice. Uh, and even though it is directly associated with the Senate in the popular imagination, it was not part of the Senate and was not meant to be part of the Senate. Um, when the framers created the Senate, they did not include the filibuster. And not only did they not include it, they argued against ever creating something like it. They were writing the Constitution in the shadow of the Articles of Confederation, which had established a supermajority threshold uh, for most bills to pass Congress. The framers saw that that was a disaster, and they argued very clearly in the Federalist Papers and other writings that establishing a supermajority threshold would have the direct effect of giving what they called a pertinacious minority mm. the ability to bring everything to a halt for the sole purpose of embarrassing the majority. You know, they were realists. Mm -hmm. They understood this essential fact of politics that right. if you give the party that's out of power this ability to throw a monkey wrench into the system, they're going to use it. Uh, it took basically two centuries for that power to evolve in the way that it has today. Uh, but that is what we've come to see. That's what we've come to see happen in the Senate is the minority use that power and that monkey wrench in exactly the way that the framers warned us they would. One thing I want to ask you, um, take us back to the first time you got to the Senate. What was it like? What was your first experience of it? Uh, the first time I got to the Senate, I was, I was brought up to meet my boss, uh, Senator Harry Reid. Uh, and it's an incredibly ornate uh, building. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of scenes were on display this last week of the inside of the Capitol for the wrong reasons. Uh, but when you're there and able to appreciate it, it is incredibly dramatic. You've got painted 
uh, walls, you've got arched ceilings, you've got giant chandeliers, uh, you've got historic portraits everywhere. It's overwhelming. Uh, it feels a little bit like Versailles, uh, and a little bit, uh, uh, a little fancy for a democracy, uh, more than you might expect. Um, but it's an incredibly intimidating place. Uh, and the leader's office uh, is, they've, they've nicknamed it the Taj Mahal uh, for a good reason. Uh, it's got these huge views of the mall, uh, dramatic ceilings, huge fireplaces. It's, it's a lot to take in as, as a young staffer. Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting when we read about, right? We grow up reading about history. We read about the Capitol, and it is something, it's got to, it must have just been something to actually be kind of part of it then. Uh, and did it live up to your expectations? Did it, did it go beyond your expectations? Or did it start to disappoint? <laughs> How quickly? My, my big, yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, my big takeaway was, was the big, the massive gap between what you expect from such a grand institution and what it was able to produce. Uh, you know, I was there during a period of historic grid- gridlock. One of the defining experiences for me, I talk about this in the book, mm-hmm. was uh, after the murder of, of 20 first graders in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, the absolute failure of the Senate to pass any kind of policy solution, even in the middle of the road, uh, some might argue not even not even strong enough policy like background checks. Um, it, it is stunning, you know, this institution that has a reputation for being slow and has a reputation for working in a deliberative fashion. Uh, but I think that in many ways has been used as an excuse for it to simply do nothing. And I think that's the problem that we're seeing today. We, we, as, we as a federal government are simply unable to operate in an intelligent way to meet the policy challenges that we face. Uh, and, and part of what I argue in the book is that we need to find ways to restore the Senate, to keep what's good about it, to con- let it continue to be a deliberative body, uh, but actually make it be a place where good ideas don't just go to die, good ideas go there to be developed and perfected and then actually passed. No one has done more to increase gridlock and dysfunction in Congress than Mitch McConnell. Um, when he took over as leader, there was a historic rise in the use of the filibuster under his watch. And at his direction, I should be clear about that. Um, it was explicitly a strategy of his. Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Also former deputy chief of staff to Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid. Kind of hard to believe all the political news we've already had this week. You thought 2020 <laughs> was year. full of action, right? Yeah, exactly. Get ready, everybody. Check out, too, a story about the book by Bloomberg Businessweek, national correspondent Josh Green, someone we love to talk to about all things politics. Find that on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Still ahead, a story that was among the most read on the Bloomberg, Tim, this week. Yeah, it was about the Capitol Hill rioter that isn't actually sorry about what he did. That's coming up on Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. This story, gotta say, many of us were drawn to. I was because I believe that in kind of figuring out what was wrong at the Capitol this year, what happened, the riots and the breaching of the U.S. Capitol, we need to understand those who did it, ask why, and we need to talk to them. And I think that's why this next story resonated with so many people. It was among the most popular on the Bloomberg this week. It's exactly what our own William Turton did. He's a Bloomberg News cybersecurity reporter, and his story, among the most read, on the terminal. Right, about the Capitol rioter telling his story from the end. Inside. That rioter, by the way, he's got a name. Brennan Fellows is a 26-year-old from upstate New York who decided to go to the Trump rally when he saw a tweet from President Trump in December. He said there's going to be a big rally on the 6th in D.C. He said, be there. It will be wild. 
So when, when Fellow saw that tweet, he decided to go to D.C. And, you know, something really revealing that he told me is that, you know, while he does believe the election was rigged and, and he has been, you know, consuming a lot of content about election fraud, his primary motivation was his anger at uh, government shutdowns due to, due to coronavirus, uh, hmm. uh, which I thought was really kind of fascinating. Yeah, that part was really interesting, William. And I, and I wonder, too, what it says about the idea of, you know, there's so much psychology here, right? Like, why were these people who many of whom are now apologizing, what what sort of sparked them to, to actually make this move to, right. to do something? Right. Um, and, and what did he tell you about that? Well, something fascinating about Brandon is that um, he had never been to a Trump rally before. And when he came to this uh, a rally, he didn't even know that there was a march. He simply came to see, see Trump speak. So he quite literally got swept up into the mob um, when he joined this march. And by the time he had already reached the Capitol, the outside perimeter had been breached. So, you know, he walked onto the Capitol lawn and scaled a wall and, and eventually climbed through a window to get into the Senate. And once inside, he got into the office of Senator Merkley, a Democrat from Oregon, um, where he put his feet up on the table and smoked a joint. Why did he wow. did he understand he was breaking the law by doing that? You know, it's it's hard to know. He he claims that because he wasn't being arrested while inside, and in fact, the police officer gave him directions to the statue hall inside the Capitol. That you know, he was under the assumption he wasn't doing anything wrong. Right. Um, you know, of course, <laughs> that kind of is difficult to believe. But but you you know, I think it's revealing. He he did not think that he was going to get in trouble for for doing this based on the reaction of the police officers. You know, you, you talk about in the piece that he's had some friction with his family uh, over this yeah. and, and over his beliefs. A lot um, of friction, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think it, it's it's probably something that we're a lot of us can relate to with the way that disagreements totally. politically are, are happening right now. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, after talking to him, um, take us through like what he's planning to do moving forward. I mean, how, do, how does one move past an inflection point like this? Well, you know, I'm not sure in speaking to him if he's actually grappled with the fact that he's done something wrong. Um, you know, and, and, you know, one of the reasons we know that is because he's planning actually to return to D.C. Uh, for, for more events uh, on the 20th surrounding the inauguration. You know, some people will say that, that we shouldn't listen to people and, and that by talking to them is, is platforming them, but mm. I think they're wrong. It's actually really important to understand the psychology and motivations of these people. And there's a really good example of that. I mean, these folks said that they planned to storm the Capitol on the 6th. No one listened to them. No one took them seriously. And then they actually did it. Um, so, you know, I, I think just in general, we need to we need to actually listen to what these people are saying. I mean, you tell his story. He lives in a converted school bus. He stopped working last spring because of fears of COVID-19. Um, and you said, you know, he became dis disillusioned when New York State denied him unemployment benefits. I mean, we have, we talked about the opioid epidemic in the past, that people who were just kind of lost in society. I mean, we really need to understand these stories and these individuals who feel like there is no voice for them. And this is where the president, in many large yeah. ways, you know, did speak to them. Right. But I think it's also important to understand that these people are becoming radicalized by the Internet. I mean, mm, he told point. me that he gets the majority of his news from YouTube. Mm. He pointed out Ben Shapiro and, and Steven Crowder. He also said he's recently started watching Newsmax and uh, One America News, which have both promoted false claims of a rigged election. So, you know, the culpability of platforms like YouTube and Facebook 
um, and Twitter are, are apparent in, in this in this riot. It's no different than, forgive me, because I'm hearing radicalized by the internet. It's no different than we talked about terrorists, right? We think about 9-11 and after 9-11 that individuals who are being radicalized by the internet, we saw yeah. that as a bad thing. Yes. I mean, a lot of folks who ended up joining the Islamic State were radicalized by YouTube. Well, social platforms certainly playing a big role in the organization of the rallies that we've seen recently. And I love that William really talked about YouTube there because it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Twitter that have gotten so much of the attention parlor too. But YouTube has a big role in this. Right, exactly. And I don't think we thought about that instantly, but you're right to point that out. That was William Turton, Bloomberg News cybersecurity reporter. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Even though it felt that way, this week was not just about news out of the nation's capital. That's right. The IPO market also often running with a couple of new issues this week, including one that was a reminder that pets are big business. You talked to Petco's CEO. We did, indeed. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to go switch gears. We got to talk about some of the market activity that we're already seeing this new year, including once again an active market to take companies public. Amazing. Just a couple of weeks in, right, Tim? The 2021 IPO market off and running. We caught up with Bloomberg News Deals reporter Crystal C to hear about the activity. We, we really are starting the year um, with very, very sizable and high-profile IPOs. Just this week, we have seen at least six companies went public in New York, and that includes Petco, and that includes Affirm, Poshmark. A lot of them are consumer-facing companies. We have seen a bunch of technology companies went public late in the quarter, but let it be consumer or tech, 2021 is going to be a year of another record year potentially for IPOs. We already have seen, you know, certain uh, companies come out and say that they have either confidentially filed or engaging uh, advisors on listings. So um, not only that, we are potentially going to see more direct listing given they are now able to raise, companies are able to raise uh, uh, proceeds from from these uh, transactions. So all in all, it's going to be a big year for ECM for capital markets. And um, it's it's the best it's, it's one of the best start in the year that we've seen. Um, so yeah, pet, uh, Petco and the adoption really help them in terms of growth. And it's not just a short term um, a short term um, boost in revenue or in business that they're going to see. People who adopt during the pandemic are going to have the pet for the next decade or so, and that really helped them. And it's the same trend that they see in sub- suburbs and in cities. Um, so and in, in terms of expansion, um, millennials getting pets and COVID definitely have been a driver. Petco, a name that's going public for a second time and with a great ticker. We're talking about Petco Health and Wellness, which follows the paw prints of Chewy, which went public last year, and Bark expected this year via a SPAC. Let's not forget that Chewy was a cover story at Bloomberg Business Week. I mean, it's all about everybody's pets. I do want to say, though, that the owner of the animal supply chain store, Petco, man, they raised $864 million in that IPO. Wow. Yeah, a lot, right? And it returned the retailer to the public market 15 years after it was taken private. The company, which is changing its name to Petco Health and Wellness Company in conjunction with the listing, sold 48 million shares for $18 each. 
Now, after the IPO, Petco will continue to be controlled by its current owners. That includes CVC Capital Partners and Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. They acquired Petco for $4.6 billion from TPG and Leonard Green in 2016, a decade after those two firms took Petco private. It's one of those Harvard Business School case studies, i got to say. Yeah, it absolutely is. and also speaks uh, to the cycle of this stuff, right? Totally. Public, private, private, public. Right, which we see a lot. And in the process, everybody's making a lot of money along the way. We caught up with Petco CEO Ron Coughlin. And oh, that ticker, by the way, let's get back to that. It's W-O-O-F, woof. Well, let me start with what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed is the mission of the company to really improve the lives of pets, pet parents. That's always been in the hearts of the folks uh, who work at Petco. But what's changed is we've really retooled the business um, instead of being a big bag of dog food in a cart type company, we really become a complete partner for the health and wellness of a pet parent. And we're really the only ones that can do that because we're the only ones who have a you know veterinary hospitals training, grooming that the online and the mass players don't have. We have the highest end food. We're the only retailer who said we're getting rid of artificial ingredients, getting rid of shock collars, and then we have strong e-commerce. And our stores, which are now called pet care centers, that more and more are working together. So here's an amazing fact for you. 80% of our e-commerce orders are getting fulfilled through our pet care centers, which just gives us faster to the customer and lower cost versus competition. Right. So you don't have to have these huge, what, massive distribution centers. Yeah, we call that's right. We call these <laughs> micro distribution centers. Yeah. And it really gives us a competitive advantage. We talk about it as forward deployed inventory. Ron, I got to say, I love dogs. Got my dog Scout. She's quite the spoiled little uh, critter. Um, but what's interesting is, and I've talked with the CEO of Chewy, follow this sector because it has really exploded. Uh, we have definitely seen it take off. Where's the most growth? Is it the healthcare side of it and the pet care centers? Is that it? Is it merchandise? What is it? Yeah, so you're seeing explosive growth in services. So that's where we're putting a lot of effort. We're building out the fastest vet network build out in history, really focused on um, the the, uh, affordable vet care. 70% of pets don't get the care they need because of affordability. So we're rolling out 70 um, vet hospitals a year. So that's a big growth area. And the other growth area is around digital, and that's where you know we were growing 20 to 30 percent before COVID, and we're growing 90 percent last quarter in our digital offerings. So you're seeing that competitive competitive advantage come through. Listen, we know the pandemic. Uh, I'm sure you've asked, been asked this question a million times, so forgive me. The pandemic led to people adopting a lot of pets. I know as I walked my dog over the last year, the streets were kind of littered with, you could see the various, you know, pet retailers, e-tailers, boxes. Everybody was buying things for their pets. Are you at all concerned that as we all eventually get back to work, that maybe that focus on our pets changes? Yeah, so so first, we have 3.3 million new pets in America today based upon what happened in COVID and people needing a little more joy in their lives and those adoptions. And those need to be fed. They need to be groomed. They need to be trained. And they need to be vaccinated. So that provides a lift to the entire um, category. In terms of um, change of behavior, the good news is more and more companies and employees are talking about working from home. So that should be good. And more and more employers are becoming dog friendly. So we don't anticipate, and hist- history says there's not a lot of uh, you know returns, if you will, with live pets. 
Um, so, and if, if you know, we're, we actively try to uh, make sure that pets are put in homes. Right. Our Petco Foundation saves mm-hmm. 400,000 lives a year from euthanasia, and we're dedicated to trying to eliminate euthanasia. So um, we're going to be a catalyst for uh, making sure that nothing bad happens on yeah. the backside. Of Responsible pet ownership, that's a thing that I think, you know, everybody needs to know about because um, that is is kind of help you in your cause there. Hey, brick and mortar, how important is that? Like, I do, do you guys think about that you need to have, to some extent, some saturation, almost like a Starbucks, where people, if they're moving around, they need something for the pets, that they see Petco's everywhere. How important is that uh, to the business story for you guys? You know, we're, we're comfortable with our footprint. But what I will tell you is our brick-and-mortar pet care centers are absolutely sources of competitive advantage. You think about it, right? They are the salons for pets. They're the hospital for pets. They're even the schools for pets. Um, so our services make, you know, we get much more utilization than your traditional retailer. But secondly now, they're micro-distribution centers, and they are providing competitive advantage for e-commerce. So, you know, people think of us in the, in the past as a traditional retailer, but that's not what we are. We're a services center, and we're an e-com fulfillment center. So they are providing strategic advantage for us. Just got about 50 seconds left here. Investors paid up big here, a lot of enthusiasm. Um, Ron, let me ask you, you guys had a net loss of $25 million on net sales of about $3.6 billion for the 39-week period ending October 31st. That's according to your filings. When, what's, the pro, what's the path to profitability and when does it happen? Yeah, so first, it's already happened. Uh, we grew net income uh, the last two quarters. Okay. Uh, and the great thing is that all the proceeds are going to use to be used to pay down debt, which means our debt payments are going to get cut in half. So um, we, we were profitable in the last two quarters, and uh, you know this will put us in an even better position. Okay. What kind of dog or cat do you have, or what do you got? <laughs> Yummy was uh, at the ringing the bell today. He's a yellow lab, twelve years old, the love of our family, and so he's actually sitting uh, by my by my feet right now, uh, patiently saying, "When are we going home, Dad? Because we've been here doing the uh, the uh, the New York City quarantine, so uh, we've been here for a while." Got to say, yummy, my scout, and the rest of us can't wait to get out of quarantine. Petco CEO Ron Coughlin, that company going public just this past week. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Still to come in our next hour, more on social media clamping down on thousands of accounts. We'll talk to a social media toxicity tracker, the CEO of writer. Plus, the keeper of more than a thousand patents partnering up with household names. We've got the co-head of the family office, Nottingham Spurk, on the intersection of innovation and investment. And this week's cover story, it is a good one. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk loves China and China loves him back for now. Time will tell on that one. And dry January. Yep, it's a thing. I'm doing it. I know you are. The CEO and co-founder of Athletic Brewing gets real and breaks news with us. You brought him to our attention tip. Yeah, I've been drinking this stuff not just in January, but it actually tastes pretty good. And non-alcoholic beer, it has a bad rap, but it's pretty hot right now, Carol. Yeah, it helps with those morning schedules, right? (laughs) It certainly does. I need all the help I can get. All right. So grab a non-alcoholic beer, a coffee, or whatever your beverage is of choice. More to come on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec of Bloomberg Quick Take. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including John Nottingham on how his family office is taking disruptive innovation and partnering with companies to create new businesses and investment returns. Plus, Tim, we've got this week's cover story. China has really given Tesla just an amazing amount of autonomy that most Western companies don't enjoy. The love affair between China and Elon Musk, so far, so good. So far. (laughs) And dry January, it is a thing. The CEO of Athletic Brewing on that and breaking some news with us as well on his investors and his plans moving forward. Let's kick things off this hour with May Habib, former vice president of Mubadala, one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds. As we mentioned earlier, one of our big stories this week, social media and big tech shutting down and blocking the accounts of President Trump and others. May is co-founder and CEO of Writer, which tracks toxicity on social media. A really timely conversation as President Trump's words and actions are behind this week's historic second impeachment. The conversation started off with more on what Writer does. We are an AI writing assistant, so we help correct uh, language. And uh, in addition to stylistic and grammar uh, uh, type corrections, um, we will also correct in what we call healthy uh, communication. And uh, that's a lot of, you know, uh, stripping out passive aggressive language and toxic language, mainly for a, uh, a, a workplace uh, use case. Uh, so for a company who's got a website, right, and is doing things yeah. up, that's what you're that's what you're going through. You're making sure that their message comes across in a, you know, non toxic way. Yep. In addition to emails, they may send their customers or chats in between colleagues. Uh, but we basically kind of pointed this very powerful technology at the Twitter stream um, to some interesting results. Yeah, and, and one thing that is really fascinating about this is you've been analyzing tweets uh, since the election this fall, including tweets from President Trump, from uh, President Obama, and from President-elect Joe Biden. And I was surprised to see um, that Obama's tweets, even though they have been relatively muted, they've come out strongly against the events on Capitol Hill. You said that 23% of his tweets were classified as toxic between, compared to his daily average of less than 10%. I was surprised to see that because I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't think of uh, President Obama's tweets as toxic. Explain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we tried to build was a, a data set where um, inflammatory language um, on both sides of a debate um, is flagged. And, you know, aggressive posturing, aggressive language uh, is what gets uh, uh, flagged. And, uh, uh, you know, President Obama uh, was absolutely very forceful in his condemnation, and that's what we picked up on. Um, and, uh, you know, even even if you compare it to the ways in which uh, uh Biden condemned. Um, there was, you know, different uh, different words chosen. Um, uh, now, of course, that makes sense politically, right? Uh, one is a former president. One is an incoming president um, for whom um, uniting uh, both sides of the country is something that he's wanted to do. Uh, but, and both are in stark contrast to the language that, you know, Trump uses well, on a regular basis. I want to ask you about that, but what makes something toxic? Is it using caps? Is it using exclamation points? What, you know, makes something toxic? It's absolutely all of the above, Carol. So um, our models take into account uh, punctuation, uh, diction, syntax, um, and then the actual words. So, um, you know, stolen, uh, if it is in all caps, uh, rigged, regardless of how you write it, fight, uh, regardless of how you write it. Um, and then uh, things that are, you know, verifiably um, untrue, 
um, you know, are also part of um, what gets flagged as, as toxic. So what did you find when you tracked it or, or, you know, tracked what President Trump has put out there? So there were, there were some interesting findings. The first, um, overall, on January 6th, all of Twitter was quite toxic. Um, so 32% of all of Twitter um, was uh, contained inflammatory, of all tweets contained inflammatory um, language. What was really interesting is Trump's contribution to that. Now, remember, he had 88 million followers, and, and beyond just kind of his immediate reach, uh, things were ampl- things that Trump tweeted were amplified by virtue of just the degree to which he gets liked and, and retweeted. Um, and so by, by virtue of those 88 million followers, what we found um, was language amplified by him, which includes, you know, steal the steal, the word fight, the word rigged, um, were actually present in almost half of all toxic tweets on the six across the entire Twitter stream, um, which is which is really astounding. I mean, um, you know, there are a lot of ways that people are looking at his ban from Twitter and, and uh, you know, what's being called his deplatformization across all of tech. Um, and the reckoning for Silicon Valley and the First Amendment is, is really just beginning. All right, that increasing level of toxicity. I think, Tim, this is going to be a problem that's going to stick around for a while. And I think big, big tech, social media, they got to figure it out. Yeah, and, and Carol, I do think that after talking to May, it, it's, it's clear that this type of language is, is seeping into places that aren't just online. Right, I was kind of surprised by some of the numbers she said, even among people that we thought would not have toxic tweets, but it's considered it once you do some analysis. Yeah, it's all about that natural language processing. I know, exactly. NLP, is that what they call it? Uh, NLP, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it in my head there. All right. That was writer, co-founder, and CEO May Habib. You can hear that full conversation on our podcast feed. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up. There is a big boom in home products. We catch up with Nottingham Spurk's co-president on business innovation and product design. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We definitely said it a lot on air over the past 12 months, how disruption, times of stress and strain definitely lead to innovation. Yeah, I like the silver lining to Mm -hmm. what's happening now here. And one of our guests knows all about that. He and his family office hold over 1,300 patents, of which 95% have been commercialized, including the Crest Spin Toothbrush and Swiffer Sweeper Vac. Come on, that's like a a mainstay in everybody's homes, don't you think? Especially during the (laughs) pandemic when we're in our homes more than ever before. So we caught up with John Nottingham. He's co-president of the family office that specializes in innovation. It's called Nottingham Spurk. John also serves on the boards of the Cleveland Clinic Board of Trustees, Case Western Reserve University Technology Commercialization Board, and a lot more. He's a busy man. Man. This past year, though, Tim, tough. But as we heard from John, it also opened up doors for innovation. You look at the current events and you look at, uh, you look at the world at, with, at face value and you say, look, how does that affect me? How does it affect my, uh, my partners, clients, and, and uh, coworkers? And, and you, look at, you look past the noise and you look for, for opportunity. And, you know, there is opportunity and disruption. So that's what we're focused on. Well, tell me in, in terms of the disruption you're seeing and where that has led you in terms of innovation and opportunities. Well, you know, we have a, a, a the, the core of our firm here is a product innovation firm. So mm-hmm. we are vertically integrated to have, you know, insights and design and engineers and prototypers all at one location in Cleveland, Ohio. And 
when we see an opportunity, we grab it. So give me, I'll give you an example. As soon as the, as soon as the pandemic hit, we said, okay, uh, where's, the, where's the demand for product? We saw hand sanitizer. Well, great. Hand sanitizer is great, but, but one, of the, one of the problems is you have to touch it to dispense the product. So, you know, who's touched it before that? So what we did is we fast-tracked a product into the marketplace that's hand sanitizer, but you don't have to touch it. It just dispenses it right in your hand. That's pretty amazing. How were you able yeah. to quickly do that? Well, we because we're vertically integrated, we have all the we have all the engineers and designers and people, and and we can just fast track it. We we grab a factory, we we get a we get a, a launch partner, and we just launch it. So if you go into Lowe's right now, as an example, we 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 launched at Lowe's. They bought everything that we could we could uh, produce, and uh, you know they're stacked to the ceiling at Lowe's. And uh, then we're going to roll it out to other retailers as soon as we can we can uh, catch up with the demand. We're, but we've sold million. We've made it, this didn't exist in March, and we're making millions of product right today. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating because I, what you know, we focus so much. You know, we've been talking a lot about EVs and autonomous vehicles. Like it's innovation often leads you to very very high tech stuff, but sometimes it's just some very simple solutions like what you guys are working on. Oh, it could be low tech. For instance, we work with a, with a number of portfolio companies that have product, and you know they have they have margin issues. Well, we could go in and take a look at that product, tear it apart. And put it back together and, uh, and deliver twice the margin they had before. Keep the price, but the margins multiplied. And so, those are the kind of we have to react. We have to pivot. We have to be nimble, and we just have to react to the market uh, as we see it today. Not 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 as we saw it yesterday. Your customer today is different today. They're they're thinking different. They have different pain points. Right. And if we can react to that before anybody else, we win. You know what has changed about the consumer in the last year that you think really stays with us longer term? Oh, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> where <laughs> should me I begin? Ways. <laughs> yeah, we're, I mean, first of all, we're, everybody's at home. All right. Guess what? There is a boom in home products. I can tell you specific. Yeah. Uh, there is a big boom in home products, believe me. John Nottingham, co-president of uh, Nottingham Spurk. It is a family office. It specializes in innovation. John's still with us on the phone from Cleveland, Ohio. It is really fascinating to read about kind of what you're doing, John. And I think, you know, we think about investing in so many different ways, you know, obviously directly through the markets. You can go into a venture fund, an angel fund, but you guys really are there, you know, in the thick of it, creating the innovation. How does it all work? How long does it take for you to create something that ultimately a P&G or, you know, another big company, you know, sees it and says, okay, we want to run with it. There's a product here for us. Um, how does it work? Well, you know, it, it all starts with a customer. You know, you look at you look at the customer, and, and like we said, today's customer is is thinking totally different than the, than than that customer was a year ago or six months ago. Yeah. And you've got to sort of tap in. So we bring customers into our innovation hub, into our center. We have a focus group. We watch them through a two way mirror today, and we say, what what is their pain points? What are they thinking about? What what do they want? And then and then we have our engineers and designers watching them. What see the twinkle in their eyes, mm-hmm. seeing their, their body language. And then we run downstairs and we build it. We, we, 
you know, we design it, we build it, we put it together, we fast track it through a, a factory, and we get it in that customer's hands as quickly as possible. You got to strike while that iron's hot and be the first one out there. I have to say, there's uh, a listener who's uh, hearing our conversation says, "Got to ask him about Polar Delight." Um, I mean, this is another thing that you guys were involved in, correct? Oh yeah. So we've invented uh, we've invented a new way to consume premium ice cream. Okay, it's not out there yet. We're we're working on it. We're fast tracking it, and it is going to change the way people think about ice cream. The same way that Keurig and, and Nespresso changed changed the way people think about coffee. Just think about it. Is this something we'll have in our homes potentially? Uh, you know, probably it's gonna <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna go out toward, uh, to convenience stores first. But okay. uh, it's a techno it's a platform uh, technology, and it, platform technologies you can just grow and grow and grow. It's fascinating. Uh, another listener is saying, "Okay, so are you guys manufacturing in the United States? Like, how how do you kind of?" get your hands around some of the discussions we've had this year, whether it's supply chains, whether it's a thinking about kind of developing industries here. And you guys are obviously working on a global scale, but uh, the need for sustainability, the impact on climate, like how does that affect some of your innovation that you're doing? And obviously it sounds like, you know, you're looking at the consumer who now wants things like directly. Maybe we want to cut out, (laughs) you know, e-commerce just got kind of a kick in the pants over the last 12 months specifically. So how do you kind of work all of that in as well? Oh, see, that, see, that's what excites us. I mean, it's all about opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so what we do is, you know, it, we have this partnership with Ernst & Young. Look, I think it makes sense that they see themselves as sort of Albert Einstein-like in, in, in what they're doing. That's yeah. Nottingham Spurt, co-president of the family office, John Nottingham. Yeah, very cool, the work that they're doing. Coming up, someone who knows also a lot about innovation and apparently, Tim, how to get things done in China. Well, that's because the world's largest market for electric vehicles loves Elon Musk, at least for now. TikTok, I'm just going to say. <laughs> that story coming up next. That's our cover story. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, this week's cover story, it's a smart one. It was a team effort. It's about the love affair between Elon Musk and China, and so far, so good. And yet we got more from one of the editors of this story. Bloomberg Business Week features editor Max Chafkin, who joined us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Like many stories at Bloomberg, Carol, you mentioned this. There were a lot of people involved to make it happen. The story is a, a real repeating, uh, a real uh, reporting um, feat, yeah. and the the story is ultimately about how Tesla um, and China find themselves in this little love affair, and um, uh, the, hence why our cover line is China's favorite capitalist, and that refers to uh, Elon Musk. And China has really given Tesla just an amazing amount of autonomy that most Western companies don't enjoy um, when they do business in China. And it's been rewarded um, by being able to have this autonomy. And Tesla's behaved basically by, by having its own Tesla Chinese operation basically become almost uh, autonomous within um, within Tesla itself, um, but you know what what r- this really comes down to is you know what's in it for China here, 
And we'll bring Max in on that note. You know, one of the things that um, China's been able to accomplish here is to almost use Tesla as, uh, you know, like almost like a whipping uh, agent that it can kind of kick the rest of its EV aspirations into line with Max. What What is the end game um, both for, for Elon and, and for China, do you think? So on, on the China side, uh, there, there are a few things. So, so one, as you said, uh, Chinese government is, very committed to electric vehicles. So so that means that, you know, there are uh, a zillion sort of incentives uh, for purchasers of electric cars, as well as sort of disincentives, taxes, and that sort of thing on those who want to purchase, um, uh, you know, conventional vehicles, gas-powered vehicles. So so China's got this idea, you know, this is, this is part of, it, of, of the sort of grand plan is, is to create this gigantic um, electric car industry. And, you know, from the sort of Chinese economic policymaker point of view, having Tesla in the country, especially and especially having a Tesla factory in the country, and, and that's, that's one of the ways in which they, they really help Tesla, you know, is, is, is a boon to, to China. Because, um, you know, it's, it's not just the factory, it's the supply chain. So on one hand, like, Tesla brings added competition. Maybe that gives a, a sort of kick to the other Chinese uh, electric car makers, but it also creates this supply chain where you have the, the people who supply batteries, the people who supply brakes, you know, uh, software, whatever, like all of that gets fed into this, this factory in China, and, and that helps the local economy. Um, you know, on the Tesla side, it's kind of the same thing, which is that this is a big, uh, this is a growth market. It's, it's arguably, um, you know, the most important uh, electric vehicle market. It, it's where right now, at least, you know, Tesla's growth is going to come from. And uh, what sort of makes this interesting is that, you know, Elon Musk has been able, it's really underappreciated part about Elon Musk is that he's he's very good at politics. Um, You know, at a time when, you know, there's been this trade war, when when lots of other companies have, have, have struggled with China, he's been able to kind of, figure out a way to work it so that he's able to, to open this factory, make uh, Beijing happy, uh, and, and, and sort of do, do a lot of business. The, the risk, of course, is that really at any time, you know, that the, the scales could change and China could uh, create additional restrictions or do all sorts of stuff that would make Tesla's life not so great. Could do other companies, can other companies learn from what Elon Musk has, has done in China, how Elon Musk has been able to succeed in a place where so many American companies haven't been able to? Because they have to be so jealous, Max, because it's been so hard for everybody else, and it's taken a long time to kind of get any kind of foothold there. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Tesla has certain things going for it that, that Elon was able to, to take advantage of. And I, I don't know that this is... I'm not sure there's a, a sort of a, like a how-to lesson here, to be honest, because um, Joel kind of hinted at this, but having Elon Musk open a factory in China has not just economic value to uh, to Beijing, it has kind of propaganda value. You know, at a time when, you know, when sort of American companies are dealing with, you know, lots of hostility, when, when, it, when there's this trade war going on with Trump, um, Elon Musk was able to sort of figure that out, right? He, he was able to ask for more than pretty much anyone could ask for. And he, he got something that no other car company had gotten, uh, you know, to date, which is trying to change the rules on um, sort of foreign ownership. Uh, and, and Tesla used that to allow it to, to have, you know, 100% ownership of its, uh, of its joint venture. So I don't think this is a, a case of, of, of Musk doing something that, 
you know, other companies could, could, could emulate. It's, it's more a case of Musk having things that China wanted. That's our cover story. And as we heard, several reporters on the story, including Hayes Fan, a member of Bloomberg News's Beijing Bureau, who contributed to this article before being detained by Chinese authorities in December. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. A new year often means new resolutions, like giving up alcohol. We'll hear from the CEO of Athletic Brewing on celebrating dry January. I gotta say, Tim, he got real with us, broke some news, in fact. That story coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, we're going to end our second weekend show together on a lighter note. Did you know, uh, I'm guessing you did, Dry January, it's a thing. Yeah, I mean, I've heard about it over the last <laughs> years, and it's getting more and more popular. It makes sense happening after the holidays when we tend to, hmm, how do you say, indulge a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit, especially this year, this pandemic year. I feel like one of the big stories has just been about, you know, everybody kind of tapping into their favorite beverage. Yeah, I did it more of an alcoholic. (laughs) Yes, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of wine consumed in our household. We've cut back quite a bit, though. And I got to say, we got to catch up with Athletic Brewing co-founder and CEO Bill Schufeld. This was somebody you brought to our attention. And he saw opportunity in the non-alcoholic beer market. And the timing is particularly right for his company. Check it out. Going into the new year is such a great time for people to kind of hit pause, goal set, and think about what they want to achieve in the year ahead. That could be professionally it could be with their diet it could be workouts it could be sleep mindfulness relationships anything and there's one pretty consistent variable if you pull alcohol and some unhealthy eating out of that it it makes it really easy to focus on what your goals are and like really kickstart the year in a productive way and it's a trend that's been increasingly popular like exponentially so over the past few years um Over 20% of U.S. adults participated in dry January last year, and anecdotally, it feels much higher this year. Bill, I know the company's uh, in in sort of growth mode right now. Um, Do you see a big uptick in sales in January, typically? We do. Um, Yeah, so the average uptick month over month from January to December the past two years has been about 30%. um, I will say this year our website traffic is up about 95% month, wow. month yeah month over month even. Wow. So what does that mean in real numbers? Um yeah, so in terms of so it's estimated that over 50 million so over 50 million Americans specifically participate in dry January, but in the broader population, 50% of US adults have 0.1 drinks or less per week. So there's a big misconception about the like the pool of adults who don't drink on any given week, um, where non-alcoholic beverages had always been thought about these really small penalty box markets, like people in recovery, people who are currently not drinking for a very specific medical reason, where really it's actually the majority of adults and the majority of the days of the week where not drinking may make sense. And then at the beginning of the year, almost more so, where like those markets triple, basically. Um, In terms of the category growth for non-alcoholic beer, non-alcoholic beer as a whole, including all the big macro brands that have been out forever, um, so Athletic Brewing launched in 2018. Um, Non-alcoholic beer grew 6% in 2018, 23% in 2019, and in 2020, it grew over 40% across the country. Um, We're... But like as our company grows, right. we're having a bigger and bigger impact on those numbers. Um, 
the craft segment specifically grew 309% last year in craft non-alcoholic beer, and Athletic had a 61% share of that market. Tim, you're an, a non-alcoholic yeah. Beer drinker. I, right? I am, and and it's interesting. I'm not exclusively a non-alcoholic beer drinker, but that's the reason why I, I wanted to get Bill on our show is because the way that my own habits have changed during the pandemic, and also with with starting this new job, which requires me to get up so much Early. earlier. Yeah. So what I've decided to do is actually not drink alcohol during the week. A friend of mine made the recommendation to me, who who hosts radio very early in the morning, and he said that is the key to a good night's sleep. Um, and I actually drink. <laughs> I do drink athletic athletic brewing beer. Um. But it, it's also interesting because I've noticed that the marketing is is not traditional beer marketing, right? This is a company that that seems to embrace the idea of um, it's sort of like you know, Bill. I think of Patagonia, like the, the the company Patagonia. When I see your marketing, it's very focused on like the outdoors and and skiing and, right. and mountain biking. Um, tied what to is, the environment, yeah. Right? Tied to the environment. What is the message that you're going for? Because as you mentioned, it does seem like non-alcoholic beer has has gotten a really bad rap because in the past. Um, bad taste has been associated with it. Yeah, it's so funny. And it's like what the company was born out of is exactly the occasion set that you're talking about. I was a huge foodie craft beer guy. I loved all sorts of social family, every like all sorts of normal occasions. But I also had a very serious day job at a large hedge fund. I loved waking up at five o'clock, working out, being on point all day, uh, starting to run ultra marathons on the weekends. And really, in that, alcohol had a smaller and smaller place, but I still wanted a great beer I could have during the week and wake up at 5 o'clock. And I quickly realized, in cutting back on alcohol, I was sleeping right through the night for the first time in years. I was on point all day. My workouts were great. And it was, like, the best life hack I'd ever uncovered. And so, like, my very normal, modern adult lifestyle led us in this direction to discover non-alcoholic beer and then when i got there i found out non-alcoholic beer if you take out the alcohol which is a diuretic and super dehydrating non-alcoholic beer is actually full of electrolytes it's anti-inflammatory it's super low in calories um our flagship golden ale is 50 calories and gluten Hmm. removed um so you can kind of have your cake and eat it too and get a great night's sleep not have all the calories and the weekend stuff um in terms of the brand ethos um we really wanted to make non-alcoholic beer positive and aspirational for the first time. And we're all about the thing that made me go from like even considering quitting a very stable financial job was the positive impact we could have. And that's all positive impact on our customers, health, activity, fitness, and ultimately then their communities and the environment. And yeah, we donate 2% of all sales to trail and park cleanups. And it, like in terms of being all about being healthy, active, outdoors, and inclusive, um, we only get one chance at this environment. And we are making a huge dent as a company, having it hard-coded into our ethos from the start. And we'd really like to see more companies do that, honestly. Like 2% of sales isn't the biggest number in the world, but it makes a huge dent. But if you get enough people doing it, that 2% becomes um, something significant and impactful. Hey, Bill, one thing I want to ask you when I said, like, give me some more of the numbers. You said website traffic 90% up month over month. So are you guys profitable? And I'm trying to just get an idea because the non-alcoholic beverage market, um, whether it's beers and spirits and things like that, or just water and juices, I mean, it's massive. We have so many choices uh, nowadays. So I'm just trying to get an idea of the financials for you. I'm thinking about our audience who are like – 
certainly into this and they're looking for alternatives and disruptions, certainly in the beverage market. So give me an idea. Are you profitable? What kind of sales are you seeing? Um, and where are you selling? Yeah. Um, so we are nationwide on our website. Um, we're pretty much the only true e-commerce care platform there is. Um, because non-alcoholic beer, we can ship direct to customer nationwide off our website, which is a huge advantage. And that's been soaring during COVID um, and with everyone shopping from home. In 2020, we grew over 500%, um, despite having pretty much 90% of our marketing ideas taken off the table. Um, and yeah, we finished in the mid double digit millions in revenue. Um, and we're planning to do over three times that in the year ahead. Um, yeah, so we're we're super excited that we're basically able to yeah. exceed our goals for the year, even even with the environment we're currently in. Mm-hmm. And in terms of profitability, we weren't profitable last year, but we, uh, a big part of that is we purchased a big facility in Southern California where we could 10x our production and really go national. Ramp up, yeah. Well, let's talk about this production. Um, what are the what is the product lineup that you have right now, and and how are you thinking about expansion? Yeah, so we have two flag, uh, three flagships that have won awards all over the U.S. and internationally. Um, World Beer Awards, International Beer Challenge, our flagship Run Wild IPA just won the gold in the U.S. Open Beer Championship. They're all very approachable. Um, our so our Upside Dawn Golden Ale is 50 calories, crafted to remove gluten. It's incredibly light drinking, slightly hoppy pilsner, basically. Um, a great crisp beer for any occasion. Our Run Wild IPA is a super approachable West Coast IPA, 70 calories, crafted, um, made with all organic grains, um, and that's probably our top-selling beer. And then um, probably our hardest-to-get beer is our Free Wave Hazy IPA, which is now year-round as well. Um, that's available for subscription on our website. Capacity always was our biggest problem, um, especially in 2019 um, and through 2020. We'd have limited releases where we'd, they'd sell out online in 30 seconds, and people would be extremely frustrated by that. 30 um, seconds. <laughs> yeah. That's it's, a good, like, that's a good, well, it's kind of a good problem to have, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's good, but it's super frustrating. Well, that's certainly something those big-name investors want to hear, especially if and when the company moves forward. With an IPO, I was surprised, Carol, to hear that IPO is the direction that he wants to go. You don't see a lot of independent beverage companies going public. There are examples, but right. oftentimes they're scooped up by the, the by the big guys. It's so hard because the network that's out there that's already established from the big players, like they just dominate the world. And so it is tougher for the smaller guys. That's Athletic Brewing co-founder and CEO Bill Schufelt. You can hear that full conversation in our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into The Daily Show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcast, you'll find other conversations from the week, including one with the Panasonic Corporation of North America chairman and CEO Michael Moskowitz, who uh, talked about some of the trends, the biggest tech moments of the year. And don't forget, Bloomberg Business Week is also on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available on Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. And you can catch Tim at 9 and 12 noon, Wall Street time. Bloomberg Business Week, we're available on newsstands on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Stay safe, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.